And we're going to read Genesis 1, verse 1 to 28. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plant bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that moved along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is God's word.
We're in Genesis 1. Easy to find, a little harder to understand. Let's pray as we begin. Father, here is a book, here is a part of the Bible with stunning truths about you. Some of us will be somewhat confused quite how to take them and how they fit with uh, other voices that we may hear. Would you help us have clarity this evening on the things that you want us to hear so that we'd respond to you rightly? We need your help, please, with your spirit. Help us understand the things you want us to learn so that we would love you and live lives to the praise of your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, then we're going to spend much of this term, not all of it, but much of this term in um, Genesis chapters 1 to 4. These are early chapters of, of the book. And obviously they have very important things to say about the origins of life and who we are as humans and what our purpose is. And you may have noticed that they're somewhat controversial as uh, sort of issues in the world today. One of the useful things, is that right, I read this week, uh, put it this way, it recorded a conversation that a little girl had with her parents. She went to her mother and said, Mummy, where, where do humans come from? And she said, oh, no, it's very straightforward, dear. God made the first humans and we descended from them. Oh, okay. Went to her daddy. Daddy, what, where do humans come from? Well, we've, we've come from the monkeys uh, a long time ago. Oh, oh. She went back to her mother. Mummy, you... You said God made us, and, and Daddy said we, we come from monkeys. I, I don't understand. Oh, it's very straightforward. I told you about my side of the family. He told you about his side <laughs> of the family. <laughs> if only so simple. <laughs> when we come to Genesis 1, one of the first things we need to do is work out what sort of writing this is. What is it we've got here? Is it a a verbatim scientific account that you might have written up uh, in your GCSE chemistry or your PhD lab reports. You say, that's certain? No, obviously not. These early chapters of Genesis then, of course, you get two, if you're familiar with the material, two accounts of creation. Chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, the seven days of creation. And then there's another uh, description, chapter 2, verse 4, to uh, the end of chapter 3, the seven paragraphs is what it is really, uh, explaining what was going on in creation. You've got these two different accounts, and they've got different focus to them. So chapter one essentially really is, has one point, God created. It's chiefly its point. I think chapter two, chapter two, verse three, to the end of chapter three, really, why is the world like it is, is the main point of that little section. But we're spending the first two weeks of this term then in, um, in chapter one, just in this first chapter. So what is it we're reading? What do you do with these verses, these seven days? Well, let me try and simplify. To try and simplify, you could take it in or take this account in one of four ways, dra- dramatic simplification. First, you could take it literally. God made the world in six days, 24-hour periods. And some Christians would. And any scientific evidence that runs contrary, well, that's all nonsense. That's all nonsense. You could go to the other end of the spectrum and be a, a modern atheist and say, well, evolution is king and everything in the Bible is nonsense. Slightly the other end of the spectrum. You could be a little more nuanced at this end and say, not, not six days, 
But we could read it geologically. These are six epochs or geological periods in history, maybe a thousand years each, or maybe just a period when God was creating. So God created everything in the order of Genesis 1, just not in 24 hours. He took, you know, a thousand years here and 1,500 years there. You could take it uh, geologically, I guess is one way of putting it. Well, let me suggest a fourth way. You could read it as, I don't know how you phrase it, perhaps a poetic narrative. It's not just poetry. I mean, there are elements of poetry here, the, the, uh, the great repetition that goes on. You know, and God said, let there be, and it was good. I mean, there's sort of repetition to it, but it's not really, you know, it, it's some poetic structure, but technically it's not Hebrew poetry. It doesn't have the sort of parallel lines that you get, say, in Psalms. And it's not poetry because it moves towards a purpose. It obviously begins at day one, and day six is one peak, and day seven is another peak to it. There's a narrative to the whole of the chapter. So it's a sort of poetic narrative. A bit like, I hope this is helpful, a bit like one of those songs that tells a story. I couldn't think of many, actually. I'd probably think of more. But, uh, you know, Tracy Chapman, Fast Car, do you remember that? Some would. Uh, it's a story. It's got a nice tune and nice chorus lines and... You've got a fast car, etc. That's the repeated refrain. But in it, it just tells a story. Have you ever noticed? What have you noticed? It tells a story of generational poverty. Her parents are poor. She tries to escape. And at the end, what are they going to do to break out? It's a narrative. But it's a song. You miss the narrative if you're not careful. Probably more famously, Don McLean's American Pie. Probably everyone can sing the chorus line. Fairly repetitious in the song. But uh, actually, it's a narrative. If you ever studied it or looked at the lyrics, it talks about the 1959 plane crash where um, Buddy Holly died. That's why it was the day the music died, um, because he and a number of other musicians died with him. And it's Don McLean's account of how you know, he found that really traumatic and hard to get over that. That's what it's about. But it's also just sort of poetry. And it's got that line, Miss American Pie, which no one really knows what that means, actually. Um, but so if you, what do you do with that? It, it is an account of an event. It's an account of a plane crash in 1959. But really, Don McLean's got one point in writing that song. That was miserable. It was the day the music died. And that was a really sad day in my life. That's the point of the song. You could, if you wanted to, say to him, Hold on, so um, let's just study this song. Who was, who was the driver of the plane? What do we call them? Pilots. Who was the pilot of the, sorry, who was the pilot of the plane? Well, the song doesn't tell you that. Who precisely was on the plane? Well, it doesn't tell you that. Oh, well, it's not very historical, is it? No, it's not. It's a song about an event, making one point. It was sad. True, the event took place. But the writer has a point to make about that event. Let me suggest to you, Genesis 1 is that sort of literature. It's a poetic narrative. It's a song about creation, making largely one point. God made this world. God created. Let me try and persuade you of that if, if you're not uh, persuaded at all. Uh, a few things that, uh, that crop up in it. Look at the, uh, the sort of the, the days that take place here, the, uh, the six days and the order they're in. 
There's some problems with that. I mean, the most obvious ones. Chapter 1, verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land. That's the third day. So on the third day, you get plants. And and, uh, then uh, verse 26, on the sixth day, you get man. Okay? Genesis 1 says God made plants and then he made man. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, there's no shrub of the field that appeared on the earth. There's no plants. Verse 7, then God made man. Ooh. Genesis 1, he made the plants, he made the man. Genesis 2, he made the man, he made the plants. Now, either this is an absolutely incompetent book that just two chapters apart gets things very wrong, or different things are being highlighted, different points are being made. Or or the most famous one that people often point to uh, in Genesis chapter 1, on the fourth day, you get the sun and the moon being made. But we've still had three 24-hour periods before that. How do you do that? How do you do that? That's not possible. That's not science, no. Or maybe God sort of had a, you know, a temporary sun. that he didn't say anything about that. No. What many scholars have uh, observed over a, a, quite a long period of time is there's a certain structure to it. We'll try to put it in a little grid. This works for some, of course. There's a certain structure to Genesis 1 and the days. Genesis 1 verse 2, we're told the earth was formless and empty. And then on days 1, 2, and 3, God creates form. And on days 4, 5, and 6, he fills what is empty. So, it's formless. So on day 1, God creates light. On day 4, He fills this place with sun and moon. On day two, he separates sky and waters. He's creating form. On day five, he fills them, birds and fish. On day three, he's creating form, dry land and vegetation. And on day six, he fills it. Do you see the the pattern? Days one, two, and three, he creates form where it is formless. Days four, five, and six, he fills where it is empty. This is not a chronological account of what took place. It's a poetic account. uh, Chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. God gave it form, three days. He filled it, three days. Not literally, I don't think. It's a poetic account of what's going on. Day 7, or day 7, there is no end. It's the whole of history. That's uh, what the point is going on. Now, that may be new to you, that may be very familiar. Some people look on at that point and say, well, you Christians, that's what you do, isn't it? You take some parts of the Bible and say, we must read this literally. And you take some parts and say, well, it's sort of poetry. It's a bit like American Pie. Do you remember that one? And um, that's inconsistent. It's inconsistent. You can't do that. Apart from, that's what we do all the time, all of us. So I don't know what your Sunday paper was today. We picked up the Sunday Times today. And I read the front page about Alistair Darling and uh, how he hates Gordon Brown, etc., etc. Now, I read that differently from the TV listings. My brain didn't really think, oh, you know, what's going on here? Am I being a bit inconsistent? I'm reading one as a list and one as an account of someone's life. You just do it. You recognize they're a different genre. And in the magazine, there was a short story. 
fiction short story. I read that different from the news of what's going on in Libya. I read different genre differently. We all do. The question to ask is, what is the genre of this text that I'm reading, this newspaper, these TV listings, whatever it may be? It's no different when you come to the Bible. There are different types of literature. Some is poetry. Some is history. Some says, and then Jesus told them a story. What do you think that's going to be? It's a story. You read the different things differently. So I, mean, I think we do that all the time. So we shouldn't be too thrown by suggesting that Genesis chapter 1 may not be literal history. It's a poetic description, a poetic narrative of what God did. That being the case, what's the point? Okay. What's the point? What's the point of Genesis chapter 1? Then we can lose that. What's the point of Genesis 1? If uh, it's a poetic narrative, what point is God trying to make? He's trying to make one very simple point. God created. That's it. God created. I'm going to say two more things other than that. God created. He did so so that we don't worship creation, but we do worship him. Okay. God created, two implications. Don't worship this creation, but do worship him. But uh, Very quickly then, God created. God created. Hopefully when that was read, you got that. That is the point going on here. God is the subject of all the verbs. So chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Verse 3, God said. Verse 4, God saw. Verse 5, God called. Verse 6, God said. Verse 7, God made. New verb. Uh, verse 8, God called. Verse 9, God said. God does. Actually, God does everything in this chapter by one verb. God is active. That's the real thing that we're wanting to be driven home. This is God's activity. The thing he wants us to know at the beginning is not what he was doing, we'll come to that, but that he made this world. I mean, there are other things, points being made here. I'll add a couple of them. He, he created with extravagance and with purpose. He created with extravagance. Again, that's the point of what we're, somewhat of the point of what we're being told here. There is a joyful creation, so verse 11 let the land produce all sorts of things, vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees, fruit, ooh, a whole variety. Verse 16, God makes stars. Verse, all sorts of stars. A hundred billion stars in our galaxy, of which there's a hundred billion galaxies. Gosh, it's a lot of stars. Uh, verse 20, the water teems with living creatures. He doesn't just make a fish. He makes all sorts. Verse 22, the birds, well, let them go and be fruitful and increase in number and there'll be lots of them. There's an extravagance to God's creation. I think part of the six days is he's presented as a workman who loves his work. He is, he's the artist with an extravagant palette. He's the architect with no limit to his imagination. He's the musician who can weave together countless tunes. He's incredibly creative and he loves what he does. It's why he makes some mad animals. You know, sort of turtle-necked, what do you call them, lizards with their big frilly things. <laughs> it's like they've got a, you know, a, a, a Tudor ruff around their necks. And you think, what is the point of that? Or the lionfish with its you know, hundreds of spindles sticking out from it. And I think it's 27 different colors of which there are another 30 shades or something extraordinary. He makes mad animals. 
extraordinary things because he just loves creating. That's the sort of God that he is. There's an extravagance to it. And then, of course, there's purpose to his creation. So as I said, much of Genesis 1 is kind of concerned with establishing borders and boundaries. Let's get things ordered. Let's order light from darkness, sky from water, land from sea. Let's make the, this is not random. There's very much a deliberate ordering to God's world going on here. The whole rhythm of the passage, the repetition, part of that is designed to show God is making something purposefully. It's kind of like you know, he's an old-fashioned lathe and he's just turning the wheel. He's, there's deliberate plan to what he's doing here. And it's good. He's taking, taking a step back and saying, yeah, it's good. It's fit for purpose. But the sort of way you might, you might at this time of year move around a little bit, move house, do something different over the summer. You might have had the dreaded trip to Ikea and come back with your billy bookcase. And so there it is. And you sort of make half of it and you look at the instructions and you take a step back and you say, good. Uh, and then you fiddle a bit more and you get to the end and there's just two little wooden things left over, but the whole thing looks stable and you think, good. And then you shove it into the corner, you had planned for it, and it fits. Good. You think, yeah, that's good. It's fit for purpose. God creates, and you say, yeah, this is good. This is good. This does what I intend it to do. Because his creation has a purpose behind it. Now that matters because this world is not chaotically ordered. It has a certain deliberate rhythm to it that God has instilled. Day follows night. This planet remains in orbit around the sun. Seasons come and seasons go. Gravity doesn't take a day off. That'd be be quite fun for a day, wouldn't it? But anyway, gravity doesn't do that. Now, logically speaking, you can only say that that will go on into the future if there's someone behind it. You can say it's happened, it's happened, it's happened, but you can only project it into the future if there is a God of order behind it. But the thing that really matters is Genesis 1 through to Genesis 6, it's building up. And the order is building up to the creation of man. We'll get to that really in detail next week. But the creation of man and woman. The thing that really matters for us is we're made for a purpose. And that really matters. That this life is not random. We're not an accident. And so apparently we share 97% of our DNA with monkeys. Sorry, chimpanzees in particular. 97% of our DNA we share with a chimpanzee, apparently. But we're different. And we know it. Only mankind has risen to the top in one sense and rules over this earth. Only man climbs mountains and plums to the depths of the sea. We're different. And we know that. But we should expect that, says Genesis 1, because God's creation is purposeful. He's made us for a purpose. The purpose supremely, we'll get to it, is knowing him. So God created extravagantly, purposefully. God created. That, I mean, that's the point. If I keep saying it enough, you'll get it. God created God created. Two implications of that. The first is this. Don't worship the creation. Don't worship the created order. 
Now, this is one originally written, a little bit of background very quickly. It was written part, in part to um, negate the idea at the time. There were lots of uh, groups and people at the time uh, worshipping the creation worshipping the sun, worshipping the sea and various creatures in it. And so part of what Genesis 1 is designed to do is to stop that, to say stop worshipping the creation, worship the creator, don't get excited about the clock, love the clockmaker, that sort of point of uh, Genesis chapter 1. So two obvious examples that people often quote. The first, the word create. We're talking about creation. Actually, the word create doesn't come up very often. So chapter 1, verse 1, God created. Then in uh, verse 27, very important, the mankind being created. So you get it three times. God created in his own image. He created him and created them. The only time create comes up is verse 21. Who gets this other big word? The creatures of the sea. Well, who cares about them, really? I mean, you might like dolphins, but why do they get the big word? Chapter 1, verse 1, the summary over the whole chapter the climax, the creation of man, and then creatures. Well, it is because of a very common idea at the time, a Babylonian creation myth, was that the world was created when a sea creature, Marduk, killed his mother, Tiamat, by cutting her in two. She split in two, half of her formed the earth, and the other half formed the heavens. And Genesis 1 is saying... God made the sea creatures, you muppets. Don't, you don't, don't, what are you talking about? That's, a, that's, a, that's not what happened. There are no rivals for God here. We know you get very excited about sea creatures where you, God created them. That's the sort of thing that's going on. The other uh, obvious example is uh, the lights, the sun and the moon. So when you get to the fourth day, we're told, verse 16, God made two lights. The greater light and the lesser light. I mean, they're perfectly good Hebrew words for sun and moon. Why not say sun and moon? Well, again, people worship the sun and the moon. And so Genesis 1 is said, yeah, he made the sun and the moon. Well, he made those things, um, lights, he made them. Again, it's being dismissive of what was being worshipped at the time. So that's what's going on. So the assertion being made here is God has no competitors. Genesis 1 is trying to trample on these alternative gods that were worshipped. Okay. So what? Because in the 21st century, not many people hold to those sort of myths. I mean, yes, sun worshippers, of course, many of us here are, but you're not, not in the same sort of pagan sense. No one holds to these sort of silly myths. No one worships the creation anymore, do they? Or do they? You knew I was going to do that, didn't you? Um, See, one of the books I uh, tried to read most of over the... I didn't get that far, actually, over the summer. I don't know if you came across this. This is uh, A.C. Grayling, um, uh, sort of notorious at the moment for setting up his private university, uh, prominent uh, campaigning atheist. So he's rewritten the Bible. Did you know that? And he's called it the good book, and he's made it quite big. You know, basically, my Bible is better than yours. Um is his point. So he's written the good book, and uh, he describes it as an alternative, non-religious Bible um, that's been made by me, A.C. Grayling. So what do you do? I mean, you look through it, and there's a Genesis, and you think, okay, what what do you do in Genesis? Well, over and over again, he ends up having to say, thus came our world and life, a natural excuse me, thus came our world and life, a natural realm from nature born, with nature at the helm. So he said, makes nature 
divine. I mean, there are endless references along those lines. Nothing comes from nothing. All our laws have their origins in nature's laws. So nature becomes divine. Our task as humans is merely to, we must be content to wait upon nature, not affecting to overrule her. So what he does is, he doesn't want there to be a God, but he wants to write us an effective book for people so they can get excited about the fact there's no God. So he makes nature sort of semi-divine. Mother nature. It's interesting. Let me push that a little bit further. Uh, One version of, I say, a modern secular myth is uh, this idea. Evolution is true, therefore you should be an atheist. Let me be careful and slow as I go through this. That is a myth. Now, let me go through this slowly. If, if you accept that Genesis 1 is a poetical narrative, I think that means that evolution is entirely compatible with the teaching of Genesis. Now, if you're a Christian, you have to insist, because Jesus does, the New Testament does, that Adam and Eve are literal, historical figures. Chapter 3, the fall, is a real historical event. You have to insist upon that as a Christian. And yet for myself, many others would be the same, I see no reason why you couldn't hold to evolutionary theory and Adam and Eve as literal historical figures. I think it means you have to say, yes, God superintended the evolutionary process. At a certain point in history, he intervened, in Genesis 2 language, he breathed his spirit into Adam and created Eve. You have to say something different happens at that point. But broadly speaking, Genesis 1 and 2 in an evolutionary account of the origin of life, I think are entirely compatible. Now, I know Christians would disagree on that, and you know, we can talk that through. But there's no reason why those two can't be compatible. But here's the important thing. Let me try and distinguish for you between evolution as biology and evolution as philosophy. So I'm quite content to say evolutionary theory seems to me a lot of scientific evidence to support that. And I have no problem with that being compatible with a biblical faith. What becomes very different is when you say, uh, Richard Dawkins, evolution is true, therefore you must be an atheist. You see, there's a a sleight of hand that takes place there. Evolution true, therefore you have to be an atheist. Well, I just don't think that's true. There's a sleight of hand which takes place at that point. There's no evidence for that. Don't take my word for it. Here's uh, another man, John Gray. Wait for a moment. John Gray is, uh, some will know him, a writer, a historian, conservative historian, a philosopher, um, and uh, he's a secularist. He is no Christian. He is certainly not a religious man. But here is him commenting, sorry, commentating on what's taking place, this shift where you want to say, if there's evolution, you have to be an atheist. Here's an article he wrote uh, in The Guardian. Uh, uh, a few months ago. 
We've lost half of it. If we can shove it across, it would be marvellous. Maybe I'll just read it. How about that? A great deal of modern thought consists of secular myths, hollowed-out religious narratives translated into pseudoscience. He gives an example. In The God Delusion, Dawkins attempts to explain the appeal of religion in terms of the theory of memes, vaguely defined conceptual units that compete with one another in a parody of natural selection. You may or may not understand that. Dawkins' theory is a classic example of the nonsense that is spawned when Darwinian thinking is applied outside its proper sphere. Strictly speaking, this is not a theory. It's untestable. Some of you get that and some of you don't. I know, it depends if you have some sort of science background. But in essence, what's he saying there? See, what Dawkins is doing is taking Darwinian theory of evolution and saying, yeah, that's, that's interesting, that's true, isn't it? Therefore, you cannot be a Christian. Therefore, you must be an atheist. So that's, what? That's nonsense. That's not science. That's, how do you call it? That's a hollowed-out religious narrative translated into pseudoscience. That's nonsense. That's a myth. And what you end up doing is, with the likes of A.C. Grayling and Richard Dawkins, you end up sort of making nature divine. It's just a myth. It's not provable. Other areas as well, the idea of the multiverse. You may not know these things. But again, John Gray wrote very prominently against um, Stephen Hawking when he came up with his latest book. So you just, you're asking us to have faith in your myth. You have no proof and your theory is unprovable. It's a myth. It's a creation myth. And Genesis 1 says to this, as to the Babylonian ones, God created. God created. That's the key idea. So evolution as biology, that's fine. When you try to turn it into a philosophy, it's gone wrong. It's gone wrong. It's the same old pagan mistake, dare I say it, of worshipping creation rather than the creator. Now, I spent some time on that. Let me try and bring it down a peg or two. Very practically, God created. Not, don't worship creation. Therefore, to be really practical, if God created everything, he is to be worshipped. So you may be a Christian, and uh, you may occasionally think to yourself, well, yes, God is God, but actually I'd quite like to go out and get drunk, and I'd quite like to sleep with my girlfriend, and I'd quite like to use my money as I would desire. And my God lets me do that, kind of, and isn't too annoyed. No, he made you. He designed you. He sustains you. You owe everything to him. The creator God, you owe everything to him. And he can tell us how to live. A few years ago when the, uh, the God delusion first came out, I went with a friend. They wanted to buy it. They didn't need my help. I just happened to be with them. They my... the, um, we went with a friend to buy it. And W.H. Smith bought a copy. And uh, the, the cashier said to my friend, oh, I love this book. He said, oh, why so? Well, because it means I don't have, if this is true, I don't have to give an account to any God. Well, how revealing. How revealing. Genesis 1 says, no, there is a creator God. He owns you. You owe him everything. 
the creator. Don't worship creation. But let me push that just a little bit further then. Do worship the loving creator as we close. Do worship the loving creator. Now, um, not just raw power, uh, the God of the Bible. There are hints here in Genesis 1 of him being Trinity. So uh, chapter 1, verse 2, now the earth is, was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God is there. Chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, us in our image. As uh, Matt drew our attention to earlier, chapter one, uh, sorry, John chapter 1, verse 1, God created through the word, his son. See, even here in Genesis 1, there are pointers to the Trinity. There are obvious hints that why has God made us for him? It's not that God was bored before creation or lonely. He was perfectly happy, Father, Son, Spirit. But God has made us to to draw us into that relationship of care, of love, of joy. He's made us for that. That's a wonderful thing. You see it in any social group. If you observe a group and you think, oh, they're nice, you want to join them. If you... uh, Maybe you move to university and um, you think, oh, you know, I've not got any friends and uh, what am I going to do? And you move and you see a gang of people. They look like fun. They have a good time. And, and one of them says, hey, you know, do you want to come out with us tonight? Yes, I do. And you're really pleased and you join them. You see it with families and small children. Sometimes parents will have some sort of hug or embrace and a small child will run up and say, me too, me too. And sort of wrap themselves around their leg. Hmm. And uh, enjoy it. When you see something that is a very wonderful relationship, a happy crowd of joy, love, you want to join that. And God is saying, yeah, join me. Join me. The personal God. Join me. So it means then in Genesis 1 language, God made his creation so that we would join him, worship him. So that when we look upon a stunning sunset, we go, wow. And we say, oh, thank you. This is yours. And we climb to the top of a mountain and see a magnificent view and we say, wow. Thank you. This is yours. We jump into the sea, a decent sea, not the North Sea, the Red Sea or something. And you see a thousand different fish of decent, different colors. You say, wow. And this is yours. But I'm not just going to get excited about what this is. I know this is just, a, it's just you revealing your hand for how good you are. You're very, very good. He says, yeah, come and join me. Come and join us, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this relationship of personal love. Worship us, me, says the Lord. But would you do that? Have you done that? Do you enjoy doing that? Let me finish with this. The, um, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote his Narnia series, The Chronicles of Narnia. The last book he wrote was The Magician's Nephew, the prequel. So he wrote that uh, uh, last of all. And um, I think that's the next one they're going to make into a film. I don't know how, but anyway. Uh, that's the last one he wrote. The center point, the middle of the book, and really the heart of it, is the creation of Narnia. Now, if you know nothing about this, sorry. But um, <laughs> so uh, these children, and there's the evil witch, Jadis, and there's nasty Uncle Andrew, and there's a good old London cabbie. Uh, they're all there, and they watch 
And the creation is Aslan, representing Jesus Christ, the word of God, singing creation into being. He sings it. And people respond in different ways. I think if you just want a little extract. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words, hardly a tune. But it was beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he'd ever heard. So beautiful, they could hardly bear it. Then the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there was nothing but darkness. Next moment a thousand, thousand points of light leapt out. Stars, constellations and planets. And on it goes as Aslan sings. Now, the three major characters that are highlighted, different people respond in different ways to that. So the evil queen, Jadis, hates it. Because she sees in Aslan someone who is stronger than her. She hates it. She wants to get away from him. If you've ever read it, she picks up this metal bar, throws it at his head. It bounces off and grows like a tree and becomes a lamppost. You can't harm Aslan, but she hates it. Uncle Andrew doesn't hate it, but he's a, um, what can I get out of this? He's thinking, mm, creation of a new planet, interesting. He says, oh, I could, you know, I could bring things here and they'd grow really quickly. I could make a fortune. I could bring people here as a health spa. They'd love it. And he says, what's, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this? And then there's the London cabbie. It's the other major character who throughout the creation account, you get it, he gets all the good lines. Glory be, ain't it lovely? <laughs> I'd have been a better man all my life if I knew there were things going on like this. Everyone's talking away. Oh, your noise, everyone. I want to listen to the music. <laughs> and he loves it. And he acknowledges Aslan. And um, he's thrilled. He gets appointed the first king of Narnia. Yeah, whatever. But you know, the point Lewis is making is different people respond in different ways. Some will hate this account of Genesis because it says, God is your God. He owns you. And some will hate that. Others will say, okay, well, God's God. Yeah, I recognize that. Now, what's in it for me? Is Christianity useful? Well, I'll have a bit of that. Coming along to church every now and again? Yeah, okay. God get me out of, you know, eternal punishment? Yeah, I'll have that. But, you know, what's in it for me? Then others like the cabbie who look upon and say, you're wonderful. Your creation is extraordinary. And what does it reveal? That you're magnificent. Oh, blimey, he says. We can say better. We can say we praise you, for you are the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we come to a passage like this, Genesis 1, and uh, we, could, we could sit and read it and read it for hours and hours. There's so much beauty and extravagant energy and creativeness in it. It's an extraordinary account. Would it force us as we read it, though, to not get overexcited by this creation, but to worship you, the one who made all, the one who made us for you? Would we do that and find a fresh delight in doing so, we pray. Amen.